0: You can't prevent injury, but you can mitigate injury. And the best way to mitigate it is if you have a consistent baseline of performance, especially a lot of those wearables that look at symmetry, like how much are you using one leg versus the other? Mm -hmm. Are you demonstrating, you know, a trend to be quad dominant or hamstring dominant? Are you using your right leg way more? Uh, Those types of pieces of information are red flags for a strength coach or an athletic trainer to maybe come back and, and tweak the protocol for that particular uh, student athlete or, or player. So I think, again, most of them would come back and say, thanks to consistent data, I've made, I can confirm I've made good decisions about the training that aligns with the competition. And I've also identified potential risk of injury before it occurred. And I took the necessary steps to either prevent the injury or the injury wasn't as severe had it happened. We're going through
1: something absolutely historic. Technologies across the board are growing exponentially. It's a disruption that's going to completely redefine the way businesses compete. In the next decade, we're going to lose 40% of today's Fortune 500 companies.
0: The exponential growth of computing is continuing.
1: AI is nowhere near its full potential. Whether you like it or not, that the future cannot be stopped by anyone. Welcome back to the Future Tech and Foresight podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mark Verbenkov. So I've been pretty active with various sports and different kind of athletic activities for the vast majority of my life. But I've never used wearables to track and try to improve my particular stats. But I have spoken at great length with friends in the past who have. And since then, I've been quite curious about how wearables and technology in general are and will impact professional performance, but also the performance of the general amateur person who's working out. So I'm lucky enough to dive into the topic today with my guest, Dr. Ruben Birch. So we discuss the current landscape of wearables and spotlight a significant 2019 study that engaged over hundred trainers. So through Dr. Birch's insights, we explore the data that these devices capture and their impact on athletic performance. So you also touch upon some of the challenges and trust issues concerning wearables when they're used by athletes and trainers alike. And of course, we finish the discussion with Dr. Birch, predicting the trajectory of wearables in both elite and grassroots sports. So Dr. Ruben Birch is the Associate Vice President for Research out of the Office of Research and Economic Development at Mississippi State University. He is also an Associate Professor of Industrial and Systems Engineering The Jack Hatcher Endowed Chair of Engineering Entrepreneurship, the Associate Director of Athlete Engineering at the Advanced Vehicular Center, and founder of Athlete Engineering at Mississippi State University. He has served as a logistics and technology advisor for numerous universities and multiple Fortune 100 companies around the world, and currently serves as an advisor for elite wearable technology companies. He also presently serves as a consultant to the world's largest venture capital firms due to his entrepreneurial experience. Needless to say, Ruben was able to share a wealth of insights on wearables and how they will impact the future of sports. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed speaking to him. Well, hi there, Ruben. Thanks a lot for coming onto the podcast today to talk about wearable technologies and how it's impacting sports. Uh, As i mentioned before, this is something I haven't covered on the podcast. So I'm pretty excited to hear what you have to say and learn a little bit more about this uh, really interesting technology and uh, the industry that it's involved in.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. Really looking forward to it. I definitely like some wearables and my team does too. So hopefully we can drop some knowledge on that topic. Cool, cool. Um, Well, I so personally, I've never
1: used uh, one of these wearables. Uh, I've done many treks, for instance, and I've had people that have used them. And so there's been constant um, discussions about like the benefits, the kind of data that can be generated from it and kind of the insights that can be um, uh, derived from it. But um, maybe where we can start is what initially got you interested in uh, wearables? I mean, I, I know that you're involved in sports quite a bit, but uh, how did you initially come across wearables and get interested in that?
0: So it, it was definitely a different approach than I think what most people would would think. So I, I've been on the faculty or on the academic side since 2016. But before that, I was the engineering principal at, at FedEx Express, and my job was to help design the uh, the future of ruggedized handheld devices for like mm-hmm. couriers. So I uh, started at FedEx probably in 20, 2010, 2011. And one of my first projects was we just rolled out the new courier device in 2012. And I got tasked with figuring out what comes next mm-hmm. in five to seven years. Mm-hmm. And so it started with a uh, ruggedized handheld device development. And then I was tasked with what what would come next after that. And so at that point, we were kind of looking at different human factors models. You know, the Air Force essentially invented human factors. And there was a guy named Boff back in 2006. And he kind of predicted the different human factor evolutions of how humans interact with technology. Uh And phase three of human factors was kind of described as the lines are going to be blurred on where the human ends and the technology begins. And so that's essentially a wearable description. And so we started looking at uh you know if 20 it was at 2012 so 2018 2019 is when the new version of the handheld come out well what what is uh what does 2025 look mm, like mm. uh and so wearables were were uh kind of an interesting target so wearables were already on on our mind on, on my mind in terms of uh work performing based wearables right so Ring scanners, uh, you know, augmented reality. The the Google Glass had just come around and was right. was pretty popular. So using wearables to do the work were on on our mind. And then when I transitioned over to the academic side, looking around, there weren't really that many uh, like research centers or uh, heavy uh, wearable research focused groups in academia at the time, especially ones where the athletic side of campus was heavily involved so kind of transitioned away from the work performing to the work performance Mm. wearables Mm. and uh, at that point when i came in 2016 almost every power five institution was already using wearables and in some way largely with the football team that had the bigger budgets and then of course spreading out to you know basketball baseball uh, Mm. olympic sports and things like that so there was already a wearable presence by the sports team Mm-hmm. at mississippi state but there wasn't much collaboration going on between the academic side and the athletic side and it it seemed like the the wearable the wearable piece was a nice way to connect both parts of a campus that don't always interact so i i think i got interested on the industrial athlete side and then that was able to carry over into what i wanted my research focus to be as a faculty member here at mississippi state right right okay okay clear
1: um well I mean the the uh the way that I found you and and reached out was from this 2019 study where you uh you interviewed I think it was 113 uh strength and conditioning coaches uh across the US um but I guess by then um I mean it was only a couple of years ago you were saying that the state, like kind of the uh, ubiquitous nature of wearables was already out there. So there must've been, you know, already a ton of data or uh, previous research that had been, or maybe a little bit of previous research that had shown that, you know, wearables are obviously beneficial um, if so many organizations out there had already used them, right?
0: That's right. There, There was research in the sense that some sports teams, you know, historically the Ohio State University and Cincinnati have had pretty good partnerships between athletics and and academics, uh, tied to like their medical school. Mm. And, uh, you know, you think like, uh, concussion studies and, you know, so other, you know, wearable quote unquote wearable, uh, device technology had kind of been researched there. So they were a good, uh, baseline for how to create that relationship. But in terms of like true Studies where a lot of data had been collected off wearables and turned into peer-reviewed research publications, there wasn't a huge amount. Mm. Certainly back in 2016, there were lab studies. There were studies done with wearables, but were kind of done in a vacuum where many of the variables were controlled, uh, not not so much just m- multiple seasons worth of data. So it was, it was fairly fairly limited. They, they were being used by the sports teams, not for research, but to aid... Yeah. Uh, the The strength coach in decision-making uh, also wearables. What we learned through the process of doing that, that research was, you know, it helps in uh, recruiting. And, and so if you are a power five team and you don't use any wearables, well, uh, it could be perceived that you're behind the times because you're not using them and all your, your competitors are. So yeah. uh, that was kind of one of the trends we, we'd seen but before when we were prepping to do this study, uh, there's a really good friend of mine, uh, coach Dave Bullwinkle. He is a, one of the scouts for the Chicago Bulls. He was a head coach for, I think about three different teams on, on the West coast when, when he was still a coach. So that that's a whole nother podcast right there that's on funny. how, uh, coach Bullwinkle and I met, but I'd already known him for a few years before I moved down here. And so he'd put me in contact, not only with, You know, Coach Howland and the strength coaches here at Mississippi State, but also a lot of strength coaches around the country, Mm. uh, just based on being a scout. And and, uh, one of the main people he would interview uh, about a future potential player are the strength coaches to really understand work ethic. And so he connected me with about 20 strength coaches around the country, mostly basketball. And we started having some discussions on, uh, they were early adopters. And so I was starting to get some pretty interesting information on how much they were using them, what mm-hmm. they were using them for, and, and some of the frustrations. Yeah. So, to to explain how we got to that study, we had submitted a uh, a research grant to NSF. There's a the National Science Foundation. There's a program called TIP. Now I forget what TIP is the acronym for, but inside of that is this thing called ICOR. And the point of ICOR it's uh, for anyone who has an invention and they're looking to create intellectual property and possibly spin a startup company out of it. That's what i funding is meant to support. And i funding isn't m- there to help you create a prototype for your product. It's there to pay you to travel, to do, you know, customer discussion and discovery. Okay. So it had nothing to do with, do you have a prototype? And everything to do with, does your idea meet a customer need? So we, we, we won the award and it basically paid us to travel uh, me and my team to travel around the country uh, to to do the interview of 113 strength and conditioning coaches. And, and I'd already done one round of interviews of about 25 to 30, my team and I had. Mm. And so we were aware of some of the the limitations. So this allowed us to go across the country and really dig in deep on wh- what were, what were the true feelings of wearable yeah. tech and, and not just wearable, uh, you know, kind of athletic training, uh, you know, strength and conditioning in general uh their perception toward technologies but got a lot of feedback on how people really felt about wearables and this was late 2018 that's when we did the work so the publication wouldn't come out until maybe late 2019 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so a little bit of gap in time and things are the world's a different place now in 2023 but but some some of the perceptions from 2018 still hold hold true today Perfect. Perfect. Um
1: yeah, that was that was actually one of the things that I found really interesting. Uh coming, you know, uh, I'm not I'm more in the uh technology sphere and you know AI sectors, um, less so than than the sports fields. But uh I found it really interesting what the limitations were. There seemed to be a lot of criticism towards uh wearables. I, I want to get into that, but maybe a little bit later. Uh can you touch a little bit on, say, some of the positive benefits that I as a as just a normal person in the public would assume that, Oh, wearables, you know, you put it on, you're able to get this fascinating data and your performance goes up and you're able to be more competitive in whatever sport that you're, um, that you're playing. So uh, maybe just touch on some of the benefits that you are able to find from these, uh, from these interesting interviews that you had.
0: One of the main pieces of feedback outside of recruiting, (laughs) Mm -hmm. So putting that aside, they did feel wearables and just having added technology gave them a huge advantage over the teams, the sports teams that didn't have them. But within reason, uh, most would say that some data is better than no data. Mm -hmm. And if you can be comfortable in the consistency of the data you're getting now, remember, consistency and accuracy are different. If you can have a comfort level in the consistency, you can at least baseline and uh, look at trend information over time. So, what if you if you're a football team and you go and you spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars on catapult and fully outfit your hundred and twenty to hundred and forty team members? uh, You know that's a lot of money, and within the first week, the head coach may come up and say what did it tell you? It's like, well, I haven't even had time to process a million and a half rows of data and I'm a All strength right. coach. Uh, You know, let, you need to hire a data scientist or sport scientist, but the, the, uh, the value of the data isn't always in the first season. It's when it, the trend information that you can then take up and use for your, your regiment planning for the next season. Or if you have, if you're fortunate enough to keep the same student athlete at the school for multiple years, their personal trending information on how are they performing and growing or worst case, there's an injury. I have a baseline of what you look like prior to the injury, which means I need to rehab you so that you look like you did at least before. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so those are all very positive things and those are things that would be hard to capture without data. So uh, trend information, uh, trust in consistency of, of data collection,
1: right? And um, maybe to make things a little bit more tangible for people listening, um, what are some of the like the key? Are, are there key technologies that would be used between the different sports? You said like football and basketball work. I guess two of the main um, sports that you were that you were doing these interviews in. Were there like uh, specific technologies between these two sports and and others, or were they just kind of
0: different wearables for, for different, uh, different sectors. A a lot of the wearables that are common between them are the ones that put, uh, like an, you know, an IMU, like an accelerometer magnetometer, or, you know, gyroscope, those types of things so that you can look at basic things like how much did you move? Like literally distance traveled. Mm, mm. Uh, what was the speed in which you traveled? So acceleration, deceleration, uh, a lot of the ones for football have GPS, locator tracker and so that you can look at how everyone moved and collaboration with each other so team-based movement uh you know similar concept for basketball you know how how much did you move how quickly did you move you know tr- tracking it indoors versus versus outdoors you know there's a common metric called t- called player load uh you know and people sit on different sides of the fence on you know these load terms but Load is a fairly generic term used to represent how much work did you do and then being able to assess the amount of work you did versus the the success of the output. So that's, that's pretty common. You may have um, like say, baseball and softball, obviously use wearables a lot. You you have a lot of biomechanical movement, uh, like being able to understand more about the form, you know, swing speed, pitch speed, uh, you know, Tracking how much you're pitching, obviously that's pretty important. You know, can you can you pick up on changes in your in your pitch speed and and know to pull someone a little bit faster than maybe you would have based on naked eye. Um, so so there's there's some commonalities. Uh, those IMUs, inertial measurement units, are are often the standard baseline for uh, for tracking those types of metrics. There's other sensors that are becoming more prominent, like stretch sensor and soft sensor where you can start to look at things like foot pressures, uh, you know, movements at specific joints, you know, getting like true, you know, flexion data um, uh, almost allowing you to recreate some elements of a motion capture system. But while you're out doing the task for maybe a more complete biomechanical analysis, mm-hmm. when you're really looking to get into the, into the weeds of movement. So um, that those have all really taken off. And I, I would say most of your power five collegiate teams, certainly all of your professional sports teams have some of those and, and more, uh, there was one year, I think we got up to about five different devices with men's basketball. Hmm. That's, that's way overkill. That was probably like four devices too many, but we were, we had a lot of, uh, teams or companies sending us their product. Right. So we kept uh, doing analysis of different, different stages of that. And we had a, uh, basketball strength coach who was a great partner who tolerated all of our uh, ideas <laughs> and was you know re- really nice about letting us letting us try things but i think those are some some common commonly captured characteristics between some of your main sports especially team sports
1: yeah that that's that's fascinating it's so um, i mean i assume that it would have been quite detailed like the biometrics that you're able to capture would be quite detailed but i think uh, what you described is even more than what i thought Um, so how useful was that data or how useful is this data in general from the, from the interviews that you did, um, was there kind of a competitive advantage that these, these teams were able to, um, find from, from the data that they were able to collect and analyze and, and implement?
0: Yeah, definitely a lot of competitive advantages. Again, a lot of them tying back to the, to that recruiting model, uh, as you're, you know, parading parents and future student athletes through and you're like, and here's our equipment room just for technology. And here's our data scientist and researcher, you know, being able to have those elements to be able to speak to a customization of the training protocol that better prepares them for like the professional level. That's, that has a, a huge advantage, uh, in, in terms of like actual advantage from the data, uh, a, I heard everything from, I think there's one comment in the paper there that in an elite track training practitioner who trains Olympic people, like the first words out of his mouth were they're all fool's gold. Yeah. Yeah. I read that. So, yeah. yeah, So you, you have, you know, it's a spectrum. You have that end of the the spectrum to people who said, I, I rely on them on wearables as much as my training, uh, less people on that end of the spectrum, more people on the mm-hmm. fool's gold end, at least at the time. I, I think it's kind of evened out a little bit more, but the the ones who really were able to use them would say success comes in having consistency in the technology over multiple seasons and training cycles. So just like it's probably not the best thing for your team to have a new head coach every year or two, it's equally not the best idea to have a new wearable solution every year or two, mm-hmm. because as you change from brands and products, that proprietary algorithm used to calculate how much did you move, they're not going to be consistent between technologies, and you don't know, you don't know how con- consistent or inconsistent they're they're going to be. You you may make assumptions that well I'm, it's pretty much the same device sitting in the same place capturing the same movement, so it it's got to be pretty comparable, right? Well, if you're in the elite athlete arena you know, being off by mere fractions of a percent, uh, could be the difference of winning and losing. Precisely, so that's, yeah. that's pretty risky again, just like training, changing your whole coaching scheme, uh, from season to season, it, 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 it doesn't allow you to have consistency and and the same is true of, of any technology.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about uh, before this interview, is, so I, I'm also helping companies like uh, take on, say, AI tools or even some lower level digital tools. Uh, the, I guess in your case, it would be the head coach, right, or the CEO, very for it. They really want to have these things implemented because they can see the kind of efficiencies and, and benefits. But oftentimes, some of the staff members are like, I don't want to use this or this is just, you know, this is going to complicate my job. Did you find, um, I guess, some of the same hesitancy from some of the athletes about, oh, I have, you know, five of these things measuring my my biometrics, and maybe it's getting in the way of me doing specific movements. Um, I guess it would be some sort of pushback against using some of these things, whereas there might be other athletes that are all for it. Uh, was there kind of a 50 fifty split, or was there a lot more pushback or or a lot more acceptance with uh, with these kind of cool techs?
0: based on the strength coaches, uh, there's consistent pushback when the device is noticeable or uncomfortable, or uh, maybe there's a culture where change is hard uh, and then of course, that kind of stems from the you know the culture is created by the coach so if if the mm-hmm. coach is a little bit resistant to change, it's possible to athletes will be too but there's regardless of the coaching culture most athletes like if they can just put on a wearable and they notice it all the time especially given that sports can be superstitious right you know i i didn't have a problem with my free throw and then i noticed this wearable and i couldn't stop thinking about it now i can't hit my free throw therefore the wearable is the reason i can't hit my free throw and and you know it's psychological that's not that's not a false statement if you're anything you notice that detracts from your ability to perform is is, is a problem um so uh the the device needed to be you know kind of out of sight out of mind mm. properly integrated in into a uniform and, and not just that a lot of people uh forget about the logistics of distributing the donning and doffing of of wearable devices you need just like we learned in industry you have equipment issue room management strategies so, for example, if we're at a large like installation like FedEx or UPS, uh, you know, and you hand out scanner, scanners and handheld devices, and you have tens of thousands of people, and they all have to go to a single choke point to check out a device, and, and they're standing in line for 30 minutes. So, if I pay everybody, I don't know, $20 an hour, and they're standing in line for 30 minutes twice a day for, you know, 300 and 52 working days or whatever of of the year, uh, you know, then add that total up and that's how much you just cost the company Mm. in trying to distribute, uh, technology to do their job. So the same thing is true for sports. Um, you want to make sure that the same player gets the same device so that you can track if there's an issue with the sensor or the player, right? If you're constantly hot swapping around devices on different players, it may take you a full season to realize that you had a bad sensor. Um, you know, do you put the technology into the uniform or do you expect the player to do it? And is the player going to do it right? And how do you get it charged? And does it capture the data in real time or does it upload it? The whole logistics of device distribution is, is often a problem. Uh, maybe some of the companies think about, but maybe some of the sports teams don't. Mm. And oftentimes that's a burden that falls on the strength coach unless they have a dedicated sports scientist or somebody to help with that part. So the strength coach has a full-time job and then some, and then you're trying to add logistic management on top of what they're supposed to do. So, so I think those are also some of the, the common issues when, when people will be resistant. So if I put the burden on the student athlete, uh if I add steps to an already extremely busy day, especially if they're a student athlete, right, and they have classes yeah. and the NCAA audits everything they do and they have, you know, uh homework period and they have to be at meals at the right time and and, and I just gave you three more steps so that I can get data, I, I might be resistant to, you know, I'm I'm just tired of the noise. I don't feel that this isn't benefiting me in a in a schedule that's already really packed so that could be one pushback uh obviously a lot of student athletes or pro athletes love to get the data because that's how they know they're trending mm-hmm. and uh, they may use that to determine if they you know were able to do some personal best in practice or for a game so ho- hopefully that answers that
1: yeah yeah no it's uh uh it's a very detailed answer uh Specifically, more or a lot more than what I would have thought about uh, with kind of hesitancy issues, right? I guess in a in an office, it's like, oh, here's another app that I have to sign into, or here's another tab that I have to open. But if you're actually, as you said, donning and doffing these these you know physical uh, tools, um, sensors and whatnot, then yeah, I can add significantly more limitations to getting this data and, and actually performing the um, uh, Im- improving the performance of the team. Um, so I guess that's a really good segue into some of the concerns uh and limitations of this technology, right so uh, whether it's uh you know one person saying it's it's fool's gold, I think in the in the paper there was a lot of descriptions of well, just you know this isn't necessarily working, whether the sensors aren't picking it up as you mentioned before or um. Uh, you know the 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 consistency isn't there. What are some other uh, limitations to having this this uh, interesting wearable technology not necessarily work in the in the team and the players' um, favor?
0: The the two biggest takeaways uh, was trust in in the device, uh, the data that's mm-hmm. uh, that they're getting from it, because a lot of these devices are a bit of a black box where they're they run some proprietary algorithm. Uh, I think that's been helped a little bit just because you mentioned AI and one of your other uh, podcasts that you did recently. Uh, there's way more data out there. So that means there's a lot more data to train an algorithm. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good data okay. or that, you know, training it against a lot of bad data still doesn't necessarily help you very much, even though it was more data. But I think there's a little bit more understanding of trust of what these devices do give you that you can have some level of uh, trust in. But But trust was a big one. Uh, The other one was they weren't always capturing what the strength coaches said that they needed. Uh, You know, so we one of our main questions that we went around and asked was assume it's magic and free. What would you want most if you could get it? Like, don't worry about how we would get it. What would you want? And so a lot of them really spoke to that lower body closed kinetic chain of, of, you know, when the foot uh, interacts with the ground or that that foot ankle complex. So, you know, if uh, a good strength coach can really make inferences about what's happening at the knees, hip and lower back if they have good solid foot ankle data. So it those are probably the the two the two biggest takeaways. And again, those were 2018, 2019 conversations. You've seen since seen a lot more wearable products come come to market. Uh, some of them have done a great job like the Apple watch, you know, I think it's going up or in the process of going for FDA approval, may, it may have already finished it and checked in on it, but, you know, so that's a pretty high level of trust. If you're saying that some wearables can be almost clinical worthy Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, you know, an FDA certified type one device, you know, now, now you're in the telehealth and tele-rehab space saying that, you know, a medical practitioner, can infer some significant value off maybe a remote patient so so and and it's not the only one that's just a good example and and part of that stems from it has so much data there's so many people that that are wearing those things and and getting constant feedback on your proprietary algorithms but um but at the same time for you know the wearable space uh and I, I lose track of the number on what it's predicted to be i think it's predicted to be like 130 billion dollar space by 20 26 or 28 some somewhere around there um and depending on who you talk to it may already be there so that means there's a ton of money for people to get in this space and be terrible at it i mean that's one of the reasons why we're interested we're like there's so much money we can be really bad and there's <laughs> still a lot of money <laughs> left yeah. over no. yeah. <laughs> uh but you you have you know there's new wearable technologies coming out all the time and rightly so because of the cell phone market has really yeah. miniaturized yeah. sensors and and you know the components that would go into a device so that you can have these teeny tiny devices that are fairly uh, non-invasive. Um, but a lot of the times, the people that spin out these devices are they were they a health practitioner or a you know a strength coach? Uh, again, for more years in advance since we did the study, you have a lot of companies that go and will hire strength coaches from the NBA or NFL, right, right. Or bring them on as advisors. Uh, to to help them be more effective in this space. So again, a lot of those hurdles of trust and you're not giving me what I need fast forward to now. Uh, some some companies have made really good strides and in, in getting past that. But you know, if you're that early adopter strength coach, like some of the ones we work with way back in 2016, 2017 when they were spending gobs of money and now all those devices are just super expensive paperweight sitting in the closet. That there's probably always going to be some level of skepticism because mm-hmm. a lot of those early adopters put the wearables back on the shelf, went back to doing a uh, counter movement jump and box jump and taking pictures and doing a, a survey on how you feel. Mm-hmm. And, and they felt that that was giving them a better level of detail on the prediction of performance than the, the wearable was. Crazy.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, there's always uh to any new technology, there's always a counter trend, right. <laughs> or pushback. right? Yeah. Uh, w- one of the things that I, that I forgot to ask when it comes to like um, a hesitancy of adoption um, and it, it's kind of counterintuitive, right. It's uh, there's such a big fear uh, about surveillance and privacy issues in any kind of technology, but with this, that's kind of the main thing that you want to be able to to get right you're trying to get as much data about the actual person themselves was there was there any kind of hesitancy from some of the athletes to take these things up because they didn't necessarily want their biometric data you know stored in the cloud somewhere that other other organizations could access or you know just whether you're talking like uh, before the psychological impacts or some sort of uh, you know woo woo ideas of you know taking my my data that i don't want out there um can you talk to that a bit?
0: I think from the elite athlete side, again, feedback from the strength coaches, a lot of the athletes either appreciate having the data or they, you know, that's just part of the process of, you know, with putting on your equipment and, and going mm-hmm. to work to do the job of, of practice. So it kind of depended on on the culture. But I don't, you didn't really hear too much about feedback, as especially if it was unnoticeable. Uh, You did in in that paper, if you remember, you know when you started getting into D two and D three schools, there was actually a a greater excitement about Mm -hmm. having technology. Uh, I think largely because your D one schools are they're kind of used to having the best of the best, and so they kind of take it for granted. So if you start to give that technology out to a population that maybe doesn't have the same budget, there's an increased excitement and interest in, in using it. So that was that was kind of an interesting. Take away from from some of those interviews, but now, uh, fast forward to now, and you've got NIL. I think there's an increased awareness of the data, less because it's a a privacy issue, and more about a profitability issue. You know that this data represents me as a as a student athlete, and that could be something that I could potentially sell for an NIL deal to you know a video game. I think that's kind of the the thought process. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when you get to the pro athletes, you've got players associations. So there, there is a concern. You, you don't want anyone collecting data on you that could ultimately come back and impact your future contract. So uh, players associations tend to be pretty, pretty strict on that and kind of kind of govern what, what data is collected. They, they ultimately have to agree to what's collected. Each individual player at the pro level can agree or disagree but I think the players associations as a whole may tend to be resistive unless there's common ground between the teams, the league and the the players association themselves. So sports is not like other industries, you know, security and privacy are less of what drive, whether or not Mm -hmm. they're going to adopt it. Uh, Like you might have an industrial athlete, right? So uh, the, I, I think, more people are, are hesitant going back to the other things. It, it's, it's uncomfortable. I notice it. It's wasting my time. It's more steps. Those tend to be the, the main deterrence. The main deterrence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't notice this in the, uh, in the study, but maybe you've come across it since was, have there been any, um, teams that have said well, because we've been using these wearable devices, we've gotten that you know one percent or fraction of one percent boost in understanding uh, that increases the performance. so they actually attribute like a win uh, specifically to the wearables, or is that too fine grained uh, for these teams to to understand?
0: I think they would more collectively say with consistent data collection, I feel confident in my workout or practice schedule regimen so that I, what I'm doing in practice and in the weight room adds more value based on what I know I'm going to experience in a game. So basketball is a pretty easy one. Like if you have a general understanding of how much you're jumping and how high and how much you're running and, and the, acceleration deceleration you may look back and be like wow based on practice we are way over training or Mm -hmm. maybe more likely we are way under training based on what they're going to experience given their average number of minutes in in a competition so the strength coaches are you know scientists themselves many of them have multiple kinesiology degrees multiple multiple of them really have a strong foundational understanding and know what they're doing a wearable will never replace a strength coach, but the wearable is just another, you know, in, information center to help help them feel validated that the the decisions they made in in the training were good decisions, uh, you know, based on that or uh, the preventative maintenance of the human, mm. right? So you you can't prevent injury, but you can mitigate. Injury, And the best way to mitigate it is if you have a consistent baseline of performance, especially a lot of those wearables that look at symmetry, like how much are you using one leg versus the other? Mm-hmm. Are you demonstrating, you know, a trend to be quad dominant or hamstring dominant? Are you using your right leg way more? Uh, those types of pieces of information are red flags for a strength coach or an athletic trainer to maybe come back and, and tweak the protocol for that particular uh student athlete or or player so i think again most of them would come back and say thanks to consistent data i've made i can confirm i've made good decisions about the training that aligns with the competition and i've also identified potential risk of injury before it occurred and i took the necessary steps to either prevent the injury or the injury wasn't as severe had it happened you know that's that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, while you were
1: saying it, it, I I interviewed somebody a little while ago, and we were talking about smart factories, and how um, you know sensors on factory equipment does the exact same thing. It 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 mitigates potential breakdown of the equipment because you're able to understand, you know, how much this, whatever this motor is vibrating. And if that's going to cause a break in some pipe or something like that, I think it goes right back to what you said at the beginning. There's this merger between man and machine. There's this, you know, uh, it's harder to tell where the machine starts and the, the or the human starts and the, the machine stops. Um, you know uh because this this podcast focuses a lot on the future maybe we can jump into that as the kind of the final session um you were talking about uh the miniaturization of sensors uh facilitating more of these wearables being used by uh the athletes this is of course a trend uh that's happening um with these wearables and with other technology do you see wearables becoming more or less ubiquitous as time goes on? Like you you said, five wearables was a lot for some of these athletes. Do you see in the next five, 10 years, maybe 10 wearables will become the norm because they're so small, they're so integrated in the clothing or you know shoes
0: or straps that, uh, that athletes are wearing? I think it depends on what you're trying to capture. Uh, in the industrial athlete space, uh, we're doing some work uh, here with manufacturing companies in the state dealing with uh like heat injury mitigation. Mm-hmm. And so you're dealing with a population that has a wear a uniform in the form of like personal protective equipment or PPE. So so there could the future be uh, smart PPE and we're looking at key physiological measures to help assess when someone may or may not be at risk of, of heat injury. So I think it depends on the data you have to get and how does that sensor need to be like touching the person or on the person to get the type of information you need. Maybe it's sweat related or, you know, something like mm, that. Mm. I think, I think there's going to be some spaces where you have to have like physical sensor devices uh, to collect the information. But I also think we're going to be moving more into a camera based and we're already kind of heading that direction of, a of like markerless
1: mm. motion
0: capture, um, where you don't put anything on the person the environment you're competing in is smart enough to pick up all the different nuances of of your movement. And because people can only move in so many directions, you can have a pretty strong biomechanical, you know, assessment model. So I I think the, as sensors get better, it gives us a lot of information on the person to the point where you almost may not need the sensor because most people fit within a range Mm. So, uh, so I, I think markerless is, and, and that's something we're trying to work on now. I, we, we really enjoy working with wearables, but we, we see a future where that, you know, a lot of the, the movement based ones, uh, m- may not be needed anymore. You might be able to get better level accuracy with, with camera systems. The, where a lot of people will tell you where it's going is the digital twin. So you mentioned manufacturing, you know, there's digital twins of, of equipment. Mm. Mm -hmm. where you can pretty much map out when you're going to need to do maintenance, when you need to retool, when you're going to need to do various things. Uh, They're, they're already looking at digital twins of athletes, you know, so I'm going to run a model of you doing this race. How are you going to do? Oh, you did terrible. Maybe you don't compete. Right. So uh, I think that's, that's where a lot of people and a lot of uh, funded research is going into that digital twin of the human athlete. So and that's going to be interesting. Like, do we even yeah. need to play anymore? Vegas yeah. just ran a simulation using everybody's digital twin a thousand times, and you have no shot. Like, okay, we'll just we'll go do something else. Yeah. So it it, uh,
1: sorry, it, it sounds almost like a black mirror ish uh, future when it comes when it comes to sports in this sense. Uh, so, sorry, I cut you off. You were you were going to finish.
0: No. Well, I, you make a good point. I think we're a long way from that because yeah. again, your models are only as good as the data you have. So I think before we can ever get to that point, you have to have solutions that give you data that is as accurate as possible for every scenario imaginable. So if you think of that, that's going to be awfully hard to do. Uh, So I think wearables will always exist in some form based on the data you need to collect. I think some of the more general ones where you can actually build technology into a facility, I think you'll have more camera-based solutions i mean you see it with baseball and softball like uh you know canatrax is really taking the baseball world by storm uh we we work with that southwest research institute out of san antonio they have a markerless system and those are getting incorporated into into markered like systems like with motion monitor another partner we work with so um i, I think there's a lot of evolutions left still with mm-hmm. wearables mm-hmm. and with markerless Uh, And the the digital twin will be that future holy grail to help us predict readiness and performance. And in some cases like cycling right now is getting a lot of attention with the digital twin because the human on the bike is even more limited in the number of movements they're going to do. Right. Cause you're on a machine that limits what you can do. So um, again, it's going to be, what do you want to capture in the task you're capturing for? Fascinating. Um, I, I guess uh, along
1: the same thread here, have there been any, any um, I guess, pushback from athletes or even from some of these coaches? Of course, they're always looking to perform better, get more competitive and, and beat the opposition. But was there any sense of, you know, we're using too much technology. It's taking the authenticity of the sport out or is it just, just so performance based that it doesn't matter? There's not
0: necessarily some thought along that. There is pushback, but in interesting areas, uh, you know, like athletes can really get attuned to the data you're collecting on them. And there is a point where you're possibly sharing too much. And I don't mean that to say if an athlete asks for their data, it's their data. So they get to do with it as they choose. But there's a point where maybe you're sharing too much information like uh, like DEXA scans and, you know, body fat trackers and, you know, some other numbers that actually become unhealthy to become obsessed with because you may either start over training or cutting corners so that the data looks better. Uh, You know, athletes are competitive and numbers are usually used to score how you performed and you want to do what you can to get the numbers that help you win. therefore that competitive mindset can become a detrimental one. If, if you're too laser focused on what the output numbers say, that may or may not have anything to do with how you'd have performed mm-hmm. in the sport. So there's, again, the athletes own it. So if they ask for it, I think you're, it's, you got to do what's right and share it, but I don't know that you need to openly share every single number of every single thing on some dashboard visual that constantly compares everyone because there's, there's dangers with that too. Yeah. Right. I I guess it goes a
1: little bit to what we were saying before of, you know, this, the sports simply become some sort of focus on numbers or or a digital twin or something before that. And you're not necessarily focused on the, on the athletes. Uh, I have, um, I have a friend who's, uh, big into biking, right. He watches the, the tour de France all the time. Um, And uh, he was talking about, uh, he's also a chess player, right? So as as you're probably aware, chess has become completely dominated by AI systems, right? There's not, I don't think there's a single human being out there that can beat a a chess AI. However, all the focus, all the attention, all the views still goes to human human against human competition, right? So even if we get, even if we reach this, you know, digital twin, disutopian future where, there's no need for human athletes anymore. I think there's still going to be a focus on that human to human competition, because that's something that we crave, whether it's, you know, deeply evolves within us for that, for that competition aspect or, um, or something else that I'm not aware of, but uh, maybe, maybe I can get your your thoughts on that.
0: Well, at, at the end of the day, you'll always have people say, well, that's why we play the game. When you have the the underdog who never would have won in a simulation who somehow, uh, manages to crank out a win that's like the the most historic thing you know for for that team or, or that school so um you know that's that's why they play that's why they do it and, and people do it because they love it so yeah. i if if you if you want to play a simulation you know that's what playstation and xbox are for i guess but at the end of the day sports there's the competition and the thrill of it but there's also what sports brings to communities bringing people together You know, uh, sports are social events uh, where people get to, you know, unite over a common interest, which is the hope that their team beats the other team. So whether or not your team wins or not, there's all the experiences that that go around with it. So I think as long as sports are still, you know, and we're social creatures and and, you know, we find interest in coming together for these events. And then we'll always want the people to play and, and see what happens, regardless of what the digital twin said we had a chance of doing <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. Well, well maybe Ruben, I think that's a perfect way to, uh, to end the conversation, right? It's a little bit more humanizing, a little bit more, you know, the spirit of, of the athlete rather than just focusing on all this uh, really cool technology and, you know, where AI and these digital twins are going to take us. So um, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, where can people uh, reach out to you or follow your work? Uh, I, I'll have the, uh, the link to the article of course put up on the show notes and uh, your profile with uh, within your university but are there other places that you would like uh, people to to look at you
0: sure um if if, if you google uh, athlete engineering you'll you'll find a lot of links to to our different uh venues uh we have social media uh in, you know facebook linkedin twitter um and, and a few others so we can kind of follow us there we we've been a little light this summer as we've been running around uh traveling and stuff like that but once the fall semester picks up we do an annual uh summit event the athlete engineering summit uh is gonna the for 2024 is gonna be late april early may so they can go to the athlete engineering summit uh website and and kind of follow us there but i'd be more than happy to answer anybody's questions Uh, I've i've got a few email addresses my Current one is uh, birch at research.msstate.edu. So again, I'm pretty easy to find and, and happy to connect and answer questions. And, uh, you know, we'll, as we participate in events and show up different places, that'll, that'll be on our social media too. So always happy to connect. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'll have that up on the on the show
1: notes in case anybody wants to reach out or, of course, people uh, that'll want to follow you. So Thanks again. Uh it was really interesting for me especially as somebody who's not super knowledgeable on wearables uh nor sports, right? I, I do a lot of hiking, I do a lot of sports myself but not uh, not at a competitive level. So maybe maybe I'll have to maybe I won't have to go for a wearable and I'll have to use some sort of camera equipment in the in the near future instead.
0: We'll start working on the digital twin <laughs> Yeah. and then yeah. you know how you can hike and you don't have to hike. Exactly.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Perfect. <laughs> Thanks a lot, All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Cheers.
1: Well, thanks for listening to this week's Future Tech and Foresight podcast. If you like what you've heard here, there are, of course, a number of ways that you can support the podcast. The best way would be to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give a rating on Spotify, which you can find a step-by-step explanation for on the futuretechandforesight.com website. Alternatively, feel free to leave a comment either on the episode show notes or the YouTube channel where you can see video recordings of the interviews. And finally, if you are part of an organization that is aware of the disruptive and transformational impact that emerging and future technologies will bring and want to know more, please get in touch to hear about the strategic foresight services that we offer and how we can help future-proof your organization and take advantage of the phenomenal opportunities available to survive and thrive in the future. A lot of future-shocked people and future-shocked institutions in our society are simply overwhelmed. Once there is superintelligence, The fate of humanity may depend on what the superintelligence does.
0: Science fact is catching up to science fiction.
1: The first truly intelligent machine will be the last invention that humanity needs to make. The only scarcity that will exist in the future is that which we decide to create ourselves as humans. Within a ten year design revolution we can have all humanity living the highest and living anybody's ever known.
0: Progress is uh, accelerating at an exponential pace and it's going to reach a point where Progress is so fast, it's going to be a singularity.
1: We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Every single headline points to the birth pangs of a Type 1 civilization.